are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. We celebrated Veterans Day this past week, and I have a great deal of love and respect for the military community, for all of our armed forces. The military community is especially near and dear to my heart. My first friend in life at the age of five was a Marine. (laughs) Need I say more? My dad was a Navy officer. My father-in-law was a Marine. Or as we know, once a Marine, always a Marine. My father-in-law was a Vietnam vet, a two-time Purple Heart winner. I've known many women and men who have served in the military. I've been fortunate through my ministry years to serve in towns that have military bases. We've ministered, Lori and me, to many people in the military community. And I have the blessing of having grown up in Bremerton, Washington with military bases and with the military community that I love and am passionate about. Honestly, even though I've known so many in the armed forces, the reality is I do not understand the suffering, the strength, and the training that they have had to endure and that they experience and that makes them who they are. But nonetheless, I know that they are willing to lay down their lives for the freedom that you and I enjoy. They are willing to give their absolute all for you and me. And I just can't help but think, if that's true of the military community, how much more should that be true of you and me as believers in Jesus Christ? We too are soldiers. We've been called to love others, lay down our lives if necessary, and continually suffer for the cause of Christ. And if the military community can do that so well for our physical freedom and our physical well-being, how much more should disciples of Jesus Christ here at CBC be willing to do that for spiritual freedom, for others, for us to be able to enjoy for ourselves as we walk out that freedom? The reality is we're soldiers. Whether we like it or not, we're called to suffering. We're called to sacrifice. We're called to constant training. And we're exhorted to follow our CEO, our chief commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are about building disciples who bring Jesus Christ to our world. That's our vision as a church. And we have to adopt a spiritual military mentality. What we're going to find in 1 Peter 3 and 4 is Peter gives us marching orders as spiritual soldiers who are living in a spiritually hostile world. He's going to challenge us. He's going to convict us. And what he's going to say in a nutshell is suffering can prepare ordinary believers for extraordinary service. 
I've said this throughout our series, but the most important thing you and I may do is to suffer for the cause of Christ. It may be physical, mental, emotional, financial, or spiritual suffering, but every single believer in Jesus Christ has been called to a form of suffering. Some will have more, some will have less. But we've been called as a church and as individuals to suffer. But in the midst of that suffering, suffering can prepare ordinary believers like you and me to ultimately have an impact and an influence that will be great. And it happens through service. So let's look at the first marching order in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Peter is going to say, Turn misery into ministry. Peter knows the suffering of the regional church throughout all of Asia Minor. He knows what they're going through, and he has a sense of what they're going to go through as a result of Emperor Nero. We, too, are being prepared for suffering. Now, it may not be physical persecution at this moment, but it may be hostility at work, at school, in the neighborhood. And Peter is saying, turn that misery into ministry, into an opportunity to serve others. Look with me at verse 13. Peter writes, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, this is a rhetorical question, and it expects an answer. No one. In other words, if you do that which is good, which has been a constant theme throughout 1 Peter, in most cases, you would hope that it's not going to create problems for you. That's what Peter argues. So he takes an optimistic view. He says, good, doing good to your neighbor, doing good to those in the community is actually a wonderful thing. And most people should respond with kindness in return. But Peter is also a realist, isn't he? This is a letter about suffering. So he's not going to stop with verse 13, the positive. He's going to move to the negative reality in verse 14. But, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So Peter says here, even if you suffer for doing that which is good, you're blessed. Which is why I had John read Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Because this verse, and even this passage, really has that as his backdrop. We will be blessed. And what Peter means by that is the same thing that Jesus meant by that. We will be rewarded. Not necessarily on this earth, but in eternity. If we suffer well, if we suffer righteously when we are unjustly persecuted, we will be blessed. Peter hints here at the fact that no good deed goes unpunished. I have heard that expression more now than ever during COVID. I won't go into the details as to why, but just assume that when you're doing good, in a spiritually hostile culture, not everyone's going to appreciate it. So we need to expect 
hostility. We need to expect ostracism. We need to expect rejection because it's coming. Now, interestingly, Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. What Isaiah is experiencing is nations coming against him, and there is a threat of these nations undoing him. And as a prophet of God, he's naturally fearful. Isaiah is told by God, don't fear people, trust in me. That's timely for us, isn't it? Instead of being fearful of governing authorities, of neighbors who disagree with us, with classmates that want to reject us, we look to the Lord. We trust in Him. He is more than able. Now, what's beautiful is when you fear God, you don't need to fear anyone. You don't have to be influenced by people's intimidation. You don't have to be troubled. You can have joy in the midst of adverse circumstances. No matter what adversity comes against you and me, if we fear God, if we're looking to Him, we know in the end everything's going to be all right. So our suffering as ordinary people can prepare us for extraordinary service. In the midst of the workplace, in the midst of our school experience, in the midst of family members and friends who think we're nuts, God's Word and our relationship with Christ can prevail. In verse 15, we have one of the most familiar verses in 1 Peter. It's a verse that's been used for many, many years. But before I explain this verse, understand that we're dealing with lifestyle. We're dealing with how are we going to suffer? Are we going to suffer in a way that leads to service? Peter writes in verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect or reverence. And in verse 16, he says, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So verse 16 deals with our conscience, that we keep a good conscience before God. If we keep a good conscience before God, those that are persecuting us, those that are hostile towards us, they will be put to shame. Now tragically, if you're keeping up with Christian news, many Christian leaders right now do not have a good conscience. And as a result, they are the ones being put to shame. Not those that are unjustly coming against them or have come against them in the past. So as Christian leaders, we have to ensure that we have a good conscience, one that is pure before God and humankind. But now go back to verse 15. But sanctify Christ Jesus as Lord in your hearts. That's how you have a good conscience. You cannot have a good conscience before God and people unless you've sanctified Christ Jesus as Lord. 
In fact, in the original language, the term Lord is the first word in the sentence for emphasis. It's about you and me submitting ourselves to Christ's lordship. But we're left with a question. What does it mean to sanctify? The term sanctify ultimately means to set apart. Now, I will demonstrate this. haagen ice cream. Why am I bringing out haagen ice cream? Because the Greek term behind sanctify is hagiadzo. Hagiadzo. When I was learning Greek many, many years ago, I did all kinds of word association. haagen ice cream is set apart from all other ice creams. It is a cut above. It is in its own status of being elite. This is a reminder of why Christ is so significant. There is no other God but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is set apart. He is a cut above the other so-called gods who are just idols. We sanctify, we set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus used this same term, hagiadzo, when he was praying what I call the disciples' prayer, otherwise known as the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed or sanctified be your name. He said to the Lord, Lord, your name is a cut above. It is set apart from all others. What we are doing when we live in this difficult, difficult world is we are acknowledging Christ's lordship. We are setting him apart. We are elevating him. We are esteeming him as Lord. But if you look at verse 15, you can see also that the purpose in the midst of our suffering is to make a defense. We have here one word, apologia, which translates make a defense. Now, many of you are familiar with this verse. In fact, the Greek term apologia leads to our English term apologetics. What is apologetics? It is the defense, the reasonable defense of the Christian faith or of the Christian worldview. Pastor Zach Talbert and Randall Casper, my dear friends, both have master's degrees in apologetics. I frequently look to them to better understand how to defend the Christian faith. And we esteem that in, at Crossroads. We have an annual conference through Stand to Reason, an apologetics ministry so that we can defend the faith. But in verse 15, it's not speaking necessarily merely of what you say in terms of defending creation or the reliability of Scripture or why Jesus Christ is the only way to God. 
or all the moral, ethical, and logical issues of Christendom. What we are defending is, in the midst of our pain, how can we still have hope? When you experience a miscarriage, when you find out one of your children has been abused, when you are diagnosed with a mental health issue, when you struggle through a physical disability or chronic pain, when you lose your job, when you lose your finances, perhaps even your retirement nest egg, think back to 2008. It could happen again. When you experience suffering, when you experience loss, and you are still able to sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord, and your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates and your family members who have rejected Christ look at your life and they say, what? How can you handle this issue? How can you have joy? How can you have hope? How can you trust in a God who seems to be against you? That's when you make a defense. But here's what's so important. You make the defense with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness is evident. We discussed that last Sunday. It is having a verbal response that doesn't alienate people that doesn't unnecessarily offend people. Peter says you can only have a gentle response when you truly have reverence or respect, as it's often translated. This is the word fear. And what I've argued throughout 1 Peter is, while there is a point to respecting and reverencing governing authorities, our employer, our spouse, all of these topics we've already looked at. The only way you can do that is when you first fear God. And out of your fear for God comes a reverence or respect to people who oppose you, who ask, how can you be sane? How can you not be shaking your fist at God? How can you have hope? Suffering is the greatest platform. It's the greatest pulpit that a Christian has. Don't ever forget that. The greatest sermon you will ever preach in your life is in the midst of your suffering and pain. That is prime time. That's when the world will finally listen to what you have to say. And a simple response is, a gentle, respectful response like this. I'm a weak person. I'm sinful. There's a large part of me that's worried, anxious, and perhaps even discouraged or angry, but I am looking to the Lord. I trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. He's my hope. That's why I'm not hopeless. It's that simple. And many of us are going to have the pulpit. We're going to have the platform. 
You've had it in the past, perhaps. You're going to have it again. Never forget, that is your opportunity. That's your opportunity to preach a sermon, perhaps to the masses, to your sphere of influence. Suffering can prepare ordinary believers for extraordinary service. Look with me at verse 17. Peter is going to summarize everything that he has said in this first section. For it is better. If God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Elementary, right? It would be better if we suffer for doing that which is right than that which is wrong. If we do what is wrong, we deserve the suffering. If we suffer for what is right, that's better and we will be rewarded one day. Chapter 3, verse 14. But I want you to see something that we often miss. When suffering comes into our lives, it's God's will to bring about a particular purpose, and that is to conform us into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can blame it on a fallen world. We can blame it on Satan. And there are certainly truths in all of that, but the reality is any suffering that comes into our lives has been permitted by God, and it's planned for a purpose, no matter how devastating it is. He's a sovereign God, and He's wanting to use suffering in our lives to prepare us for great service for Him. So that's our first marching order. Turn misery into ministry. Now we're going to see a second marching order in verses 18 through 22. Focus on Christ's victory. There is a victory that's already been accomplished. It's complete. When we suffer, we are suffering knowing how all of this ends. So look at what Peter writes in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Now, once for all is one simple Greek adverb, and it means once for all time, not once for all people. That's not being discussed here. It's once for all time. Peter is saying, Christ never needs to die again. The sin that you and I have committed in the past, are committing in the present, will commit in the future, it's all been taken care of, past, present, and future forgiven, forgotten forever. It's done. It is finished, Jesus said in John 19. So look again at verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust. He's just, we are unjust. So that, here's the purpose, he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Christ died for sin, one sacrifice for all time. And he did so to bring sinful people to God. We've been covered by the blood of Christ, which is the only way we can enter into God's presence. We're under the blood. This verse is very, very clear. It is straightforward. There are very few difficulties with verse 18. And I think that's by design. 
because verses 19 and 20, in my humble opinion, are the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. I would need hours, days perhaps, to break these verses down to explain all of the views. When Lori and I were in Bible college at Multnomah, we cut our teeth on Millard Erickson, a gentleman who wrote a book called Christian Theology. It's gone through several revisions. He is a phenomenal scholar. When he looked at these two verses and did exhaustive research on them, are you ready for this? He said there are 180 exegetical combinations for interpreting this verse. 180. There is no other passage like this in the Bible as far as I'm concerned. Now, the reason that I can't bog down in this particular passage is anyone who works through this passage understands that it requires an interpretation of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. You are going to have to wait for the time when I teach the book of Genesis to fully understand where I'm coming from. I will read these two verses that Martin Luther said he will never understand how these should be interpreted. The founder of the Reformation, he died saying, I have no idea what these verses mean. We will read these two verses. I will share with you basic views and then I'll explain the view that I prefer. Verses 19 and 20. In which also he, Jesus, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. These verses can break down into three categories. Christ preached in his pre-incarnate state. That means before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. These verses may mean that Christ preached during the period between his death and his resurrection. The third option is that Christ preached after his resurrection. These verses give way to the Apostles' Creed that argued between Christ's death and resurrection, he descended into hell and proclaimed victory. What's difficult here is every single view has problems. All three of these primary positions. And it gets even more complicated. Christ either preached to human beings, or he preached to fallen angels. Again, both of these views have difficulties. The view that I have adopted is that Christ preached through Noah. During the time that Noah was constructing the ark, he preached a message of repentance to a spiritually hostile world like the one we live in. The results were nil, like the world that we live in. There was a sense of urgency because he had 120 years to preach it. There's a sense of urgency for us 
Because Christ could return today. Jesus Christ could crack the sky and bring us to himself. And if that is true, we need to have that sense of urgency. We need to preach Jesus. Now, without going into detail in terms of all the specifics of the interpretations, we can't afford to miss the forest from the trees. We can't get caught up in the trees and in the weeds and break all this down. The reality is, whatever Peter is saying here ties back into verses 13 through 17. It also moves forward and segues into chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Here's how we can nail it. Jesus' victory is complete. What Peter is going to talk about is Jesus died. He rose. He was ascended to the right hand of God the Father. His victory is complete. Whether it was Jesus preaching in the days of Noah, in and through Noah, he did that through the prophets in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 of Peter. Second Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, tell us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We know from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, that Jesus is able to communicate in and through people. And if I am God's mouthpiece, which we will talk about next Sunday, and I'm speaking what Peter says are the very words of God, I better be trusting Jesus and the Holy Spirit to speak in and through me. Now, there's problems, again, with every single solitary view, including the one that I just suggested. But if the bottom line is Jesus' victory is complete, we're fine. We're fine. Suffering can prepare ordinary people for extraordinary service. We look at Jesus' example of suffering, we look at how Jesus suffered, and he was ultimately vindicated. Now, instead of having a break, we have another one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. Following up verses 19 and 20, we have verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Uh-oh. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Okay, a good conscience. We just looked at that in verse 16. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's very important. Does this verse teach that baptism is a condition of salvation? No. We take the clear teachings of Scripture. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Over 150 times throughout the New Testament, we take that and we know that that is the main thing. That is the plain thing. Then we look at this verse. This is the best way to interpret this verse as far as I am concerned. Whenever the biblical authors speak of water baptism, they are also concurrently speaking of spirit baptism. Spirit baptism happens at the point of conversion. It allows us to be in Christ. If you go back to verse 16, you can see that phrase, in Christ. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. That is the first time Peter uses the term in Christ. 
Spirit baptism is you and I coming into the family of God universally, being brought into the universal church, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And it is something that every believer experiences. Well, once you've been spirit baptized, it is assumed in the New Testament that you will immediately be water baptized. Because water baptism is the demonstration of spirit baptism. It doesn't save you. That's what spirit baptism does. It doesn't bring about moral purity as a guarantee, the dirt, the filth that Peter is talking about, but it's your pledge. It's you making a commitment before God that you want to grow as a disciple, and then you're off and running in your Christian life. We have a baptism today. That baptism demonstrates Jesus Christ death and burial, and his resurrection. When we are baptized, it demonstrates we are in Christ, and we are being raised up to new life in Christ. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. If you have never been baptized, it's the first step of discipleship. It is an expectation that Jesus has, which is why Jesus was baptized. Not because he needed to be, because he wanted to set an example for all of his disciples. Baptism is when we publicly identify with Jesus and we go public. We come out of the closet, so to speak, and we proclaim Christ as Lord. That's baptism. Verse 22 concludes beautifully. After speaking of Jesus Christ, Peter says, this Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. The right hand exemplifies power and authority. Jesus Christ accomplished everything through his death and resurrection. And now he is seated at the Father's right hand. And he is praying for people to believe in him as Savior. And he is defending us from Satan's attack. He is our high priest. He is our advocate. And he is in heaven experiencing all the power and authority that he did prior to coming to planet Earth. So we've seen that we are responsible to turn misery into ministry, that we are to focus on Christ's victory. Now in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, we're going to give one more marching order, the third and final marching order. Prepare yourself to suffer. Oh, what good news! <laughs> See, going back in our text to verse 14, the term suffer is used. It's used 12 times in a five-chapter letter. Suffering is emphasized more in 1 Peter than any other book of the Bible. So here, Peter, he gives the clarion call. Prepare yourself to suffer. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, in light of what I've said in chapter 3, verse 13 through 22, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. 
also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, in these six verses, there's only one command. Arm yourself. So you can put a little exclamation point in the margin of your Bible. Arm yourself. Now, what I'd like you to do is just grab a hold of your biceps and triceps. Just grab a hold of those arms. You can flex them if you want. You can jiggle them. Mine are jiggling, unfortunately. Many of us, I would dare say all of us, have flexed our muscle in our time on planet Earth. Some of us do it daily in front of the mirror. Let's just be honest. Men and women, we want to make sure that things are firm. We want to see if there's any improvement. We don't want to be playing the guitar or mandolin on our arms. So we, we care about our arms. Peter says, arm yourself. Now, are you ready for this? Only used here in the entire New Testament. But if you go into extra-biblical Greek, it's a military term. It's speaking of never surrendering. In other contexts, getting the equipment that you need for battle. Peter is saying each and every day, you ought to arm yourself because you're going into battle and there's going to be suffering. So when you look into the mirror and you're getting ready for work or school, I want you to think about this. When you see your arms, whether they're muscular and ripped or there's room for improvement, think about this command. Because if you and I don't arm ourselves with God's Word, with our, our identity in Christ, and with the preparation that we are going to need to expect suffering. We are going to be in deep trouble going into battle on a daily basis. So we follow the command. We arm ourselves. When we arm ourselves, we recognize that when we suffer in the flesh, we cease or rest from sin. Now, this is bizarre. But what Peter is saying is, the more you suffer for Christ... The more you endure pain and agony, the less likely you are to sin because you're hurting, because you feel that sense of hopelessness and helplessness and you look to the Savior. And you say, Lord, have mercy. I'm going to set apart you, Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to seek to make a defense to the people in my life Suffering ties you intimately to the Savior. And the more you suffer, the more you're able to experience a ceasing from sin. Not that you are sinless. You just don't have as much time and energy to sin because of the suffering in your life. I've experienced this. It's a great way to overcome the struggles with sin. Will you always have them this side of heaven? Oh, yes. But they may not be as intense in your heart and mind because of the burdens that you're carrying and your need to depend upon the Lord. Verse 2 continues, Peter says, so as to live the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So as we suffer, and as we suffer justly or righteously, we ultimately see the Lord overcoming the lusts 
of the flesh, the lusts of men, and we begin to live more and more for the will of God. Verse 3 explains with the use of the word for. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. This verse rocks. I call this the college campus sins. I mean, some of you, you're going back in your mind and you're like, that was my life. I did all those things. Six sins that many of us did while we were in college. And you know what Peter says? Peter is so relevant. He says, haven't you sinned enough? I mean, you have sinned to your heart's content. Some of us before trusting in Christ, others after trusting in Christ. Peter says, how much more do you have to sin? It is sufficient what you've done in the past. Let's get on with submitting to Christ's lordship, setting apart Christ as Lord. Let's really begin to live. Suffering can prepare ordinary believers for extraordinary service. Don't look back. Boston, one of the greatest bands in the history of rock and roll, says, don't look back. Boston got that idea from Peter. Peter is saying, don't look back to your former life. Move forward. Live for Christ. Suffer well. In verses 4 and 5, he writes, in all this, they, the world, are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. Other English versions translate this flood, and that is a better rendering. There is a flood of sin that is coming against the world. I think this unique term ties back to verses 19 through 20. The flood in the days of Noah. Just like the flood took out everyone but eight people, there's a flood of sin in our society just like there was in the first century. And that flood is going to ultimately destroy people. These individuals malign you because they want you to join in in their sin. Because when we join in with people who are sinning, it helps them to feel better about their sin. Their conscience is impacted. And if they can get Christians to join in and sin with them, oh, they're feeling good. Verse 5 says, frighteningly, but they, the world, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There is a day of future accountability for the world that is partying and having a good old time right now. And that judgment is an eternal judgment. But notice how Peter concludes. In verse 6, he says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Scholars have become notorious for saying that this verse teaches a second chance for people who die. They assume that Jesus is going to one day preach the gospel and let everyone who has ever lived believe in him. But there's no mention of Jesus in this verse. 
And the better way to translate this verse, as the NIV and other versions do, is, listen to this, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are now dead. The gospel was preached by the apostles, those people who died by the time this letter was written. They trusted in Christ. They heard the good news of Jesus this side of eternity, and now they are dead and in the presence of the Lord himself. There are no second chances. There is a sense of urgency. If I'm correct and Christ could return today, today while I'm talking, we need to trust in him. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the very first time, it's very simple. You take your sin, all your sin, the past, present, future sins that you will commit, you give them to Jesus. Jesus, in exchange, gives you his perfection, his righteousness, because he lived a perfect life. He died on a cross for your sin. He rose from the dead to demonstrate that he is God. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he's praying for you. He wants you to believe in him this morning because there is a sense of urgency. You are not promised tomorrow, nor am I. we got to get right. We need to trust in Christ, and we need to make sure that we're living for Christ. And we need to look at the suffering in our lives and say, suffering can prepare me, an ordinary person, to live an extraordinary life for God's glory and for our eternal good. Let's pray. Father, my heart is heavy right now for those who have never believed the good news of Jesus. Lord, in the midst of a discouraging season in our country and in our world, may we all look to you. May we know that you could return today. And may we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. You can do that right now in the privacy of your seat. You don't have to sign a card. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to pray a prayer. But honestly, I would love to talk with you afterwards. I'm going to be at the Welcome Center. You can just simply say, hey, Keith, I trusted in Christ for the very first time. I can get some materials into your hands. We can make sure as a church family we help you grow. Father, may we live for your honor and glory as a church family. May we resist the devil. May we preach sermons with our lives and with our lips. And may you receive all honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.